Welcome to the MediBlur podcast, where we bring you in-depth discussions on leading-edge medical and health topics with experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Dwyer. As a physician-directed organization, MediBlurb's mission is to provide trustworthy and authoritative information to help improve lives. Our audio podcasts, along with written resources, provide a brief and easily digestible source of information on the latest advances in medical care and research, medical devices, and pharmaceuticals. This podcast is directed towards physicians, healthcare providers, healthcare systems, and medical and pharmaceutical companies. Join us as we explore the latest developments in healthcare and improve our understanding of medical and health topics. Good morning, Dr. Baronchuk, and welcome to MediBlurb Podcasts. It is a great honor to have such an accomplished cardiologist and electrophysiologist as our MediBlurb guest today to talk about atrial failure. A brief introduction about your career is absolutely warranted. Dr. Adrian Baranchuk is a native of Buenos Aires, Argentina. He obtained his MD in 1990 from the University of Buenos Aires. After qualifying in internal medicine and cardiology in 1995, he completed a clinical fellowship in cardiac electrophysiology in 1997. In 2002, he immigrated to Spain for a research fellowship, and then in 2003, Dr. Baranchuk was appointed as a clinical fellow in electrophysiology at McMaster University. He was appointed as an assistant professor of medicine at Queen's University in 2006, promoted to associate professor in 2010, and to full professor with tenure in 2016. He founded the EP training program in 2007. He is a member of numerous editorial boards and a reviewer of several journals. Adrian has written a number of books and has published more than 750 articles in well-recognized international journals and presented more than 260 abstracts. And somehow, Adrian, Adrian has amazingly found time to closely mentor more than 140 students and residents, which included their participation in many scholarly publications. Finally, he is currently president-elect of the Inter-American Society of Cardiology. Welcome, Adrian. Any additions or clarifications before we get started? Thank you, Jim, for the opportunity of, of being today uh, talking about atrial failure for, for Midibler. And it is an honor to me to be interviewed by you. Listening to my career from you, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> However... Uh, it is a great uh, it, it is a great journey uh, that that I am able to balance with great family time and with friends like you. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, that's excellent. After listening to your CV and reading it, I feel like I've been a slug my career. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for joining us today as a non-academic interventional cardiologist who retired from the cath lab. After more than three decades, it's it really is very exciting to learn from brilliant academicians like yourself. But before we start the discussion, is it is important to remind our listeners that MediBlur podcast provides medical and health information for educational purposes only. The information shared in the podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare provider for personalized medical advice. The hosts, guests, and producers of the podcast do not accept any liability for any injury or loss resulting from reliance on the information provided. 
Listeners should always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider before making any changes to their medical care. So Adrian, please talk to us about atrial failure, which you have described as a new syndrome that all cardiologists and other physicians should be aware of. Thank you again, Jim, for this invitation. And I would also like to clarify my conflict of interest. While I do receive grants and, and honorarium from many different uh, companies and, and industry, for all the work that we perform over the years to arrive to these conclusions on a new cardiovascular syndrome, we have received no funding and all the work has been done in our personal time. So having said all that, the, the first thing that I would like to do is to uh, recognize the leadership of an Spaniard cardiologist, uh, quite young individual, and you will remember this name. Uh, he is Dr. Felipe Bisbal, who has been the leading individual for this project. And I am convinced that without his uh, young energy and wisdom, we could not be able to have completed this project. Wow. But the fascinating aspect, Jim, and I want you to, to reflect on something that now we call intergenerational bias. And we want to reframe it as intergenerational equity. We had two individuals that have joined the conceptualization of atrial failure. And they are Dr. Anthony Baez de Luna from Catalonia, who is possibly the number one electrocardiologist alive in the world. Oh my. And by Professor Eugene Brownwald, who requires no introductions, as every alive person in the world has been trained in cardiology. And I am sure that you too, uh, Jim. Uh, by reading his books. And as I speak, I have a wonderful seventh edition, just the seventh edition from many decades ago uh, on my shelf that I rescued from a colleague that was retiring. That was so, the Bible. That was the Bible. We didn't have the, the Bible for those us. days. Yeah. <clears throat> it's the most precious uh, condensed information in cardiovascular disease that anybody training in cardiology should aim for. So having him supervise it, contributing with his wisdom and amplified vision, it was a learning process that went beyond this topic and that now I am able to apply with my students, with my trainees, with the groups that I have the pleasure to interact with because he was able to teach us through this process how you move from the research idea to the conceptualization and communication of that idea to be applicable, not only in North America, but in every single part of the world. So now Fantastic. every time that I see somebody embracing this and putting the term in their papers or moving in that direction, I feel joy because now I can realize that what he told us during the production of this piece is now occurring as he said to us. What an amazing process. 
And before we start talking in detail about this, I want to do some sort of a Professor Brownwell's quotation. Talking about this to the media, he said, this is the last cardiovascular syndrome that I will be able to describe. And for me, having been part of the conceptualization of this idea and having Professor Brownwell as, as the so as, 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 as the guidance, as the light in the darkness of where to go when we were finding uh, uh, bumps in the road, it will be a, a lifetime experience. So now I'm ready to talk oh. about it. <laughs> okay, well, that's fantastic. Well, it sounds like quite an adventure working with him and your other colleagues. Well, tell us, tell us about the atrial failure, maybe starting with the definition and carry yeah. on from there. So, so basically, we, we conceptualize atrial failure as any deterioration, and that includes hemodynamics, electrical, um, uh, association with clot formation that could occur in the atria, but not associated with ventricular failure or valvular failure. So in order for you to determine primary atrial failure, you have to completely rule out that the things that are surrounding the atria are not sync producing deterioration of the atrial function. Makes sense. And atrial failure is a syndrome. And the symptoms of that syndrome should be deterioration of your quality of life due to either arrhythmias, heart failure, or stroke, and deterioration or shortening of your quantity of life by okay. means of dying as a consequence of atrial failure. Who came up with the term? I noticed in one uh, description, uh, the atria are like the heart's silly sisters. <laughs> I thought that was so, pretty fabulous. Well, thank you. I have received lots of criticism on that definition. <laughs> and and it, the clarification for that is this was said during an interview in Spanish where the term silly is less offensive than what it sounds in English. I, I, I want to tell your audience that English is my fourth language. So sometimes, oh sometimes uh, uh, I, I, I fell into this type of, of linguistic traps, right? However, this was a, a literal translation uh, done by Medscape English from Medscape Spanish. Okay. And when I read it in English, I have to say that myself, it doesn't sound good. But uh, uh, a couple of colleagues remind me that from different parts of the world. Well, saying, I think that helps uh, keep this stuff in <laughs> people's minds. Uh, <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah. But uh, but I I, I I I I would like to play this humbly and and say, even when I understand that that attracts attention, what I try to say here is: for decades, for decades, we thought about the heart in terms of what happened to the ventricles to the point that we are very happy saying heart or, or, or congestive heart failure to refer to a problem that is primarily in the ventricles or to call ventricular insufficiency 
and or ventricular dysfunction. And we have involved the atria as if they were necessarily an independent, uh, uh, sorry, a dependent part of the ventricles. Okay. To the yeah. point, to the point, and I want you to reflect on this, uh, uh, Jim, that now we have accepted the term heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which I understand, and high heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And the best analogy that I have for that discussable term is to define headache without a brain tumor. What? Brain tumor is only one reason for headache. So headache could be defined without eliminating only one of the reasons that produce, that produce headache. With okay. heart failure occurs exactly the same because heart failure with preserved ejection fraction has directed scientists, clinicians, mm -hmm. researchers, and industry to find ways to improve heart failure based on the fact that the ventricle has preserved ejection fraction. And I could like to motivate, to challenge my colleagues to tell me only in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, if all aspects of atrial dynamics are normal or not. Okay. Whoa, why? Yeah, that's, that's because a... maybe we are not paying attention to the, within quotation, silly sister of the ventricle. So, so right. how, how may, you know, how may standalone atrial failure potentially cause heart failure symptoms, stroke and pulmonary hypertension? That's probably hard to state in a in a couple of minutes, but do your best. I, I will I will go very quickly. Um, this is a progressive phenomenon that, of course, it can have peaks in the evolution and then go back. For example, if you have a purely ischemic atrial event, but in general terms, this describes a phenomenon that is progressive due to fibrosis replacement of normal. Uh, cardiac myocytes in the atria. And that produces alterations in the hemodynamics of the atrium. Why? Because when you have fibrosis in the, in the intraatrial aspect of the heart, electricity uh, tries to find different alternatives to move from right to left in order to provide a synchronized atrial contraction. Remember, that the atrial contraction is produced by two chambers starting in the right and then in the left. But if you have delay in the activation due to replacement of myocytes by fibrosis, then the electricity looks for alternative pathways. And as it happens in the AV node or as it happens in the, in the branches of, of, the, of, of the His, this happens also in the atria. So this progressive fibrosis alters not only the electricity, but the hemodynamics of the biatrial contraction. And that produces stasis, which contributes to endothelial dysfunction and cascade of uh, activation of the thrombogenic cascade. And it produces alterations in the reservoir aspect of the left atrium inducing pulmonary hypertension, as you mentioned, all that in the context of a normal ventricle. 
Now there's so, also there also neurohormonal activation that's involved. And thank you for bringing this up. I, I and I I am super happy that you got involved in this. Uh, we learn a lot about neurohormonal activation due to ventricular dysfunction. So I'm not going to make emphasis on this. The same process of profound neurohormonal activation is also present in atrial dysfunction. And what I wanted to show the audience is this, this vicious circle where the initiation of fibrosis may be due to triggers like hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, smoking, atherosclerosis, diabetes, you name it, triggers alterations in the synchronization of the contraction, which at the same time produces the neurohormonal activation, the activation of the thrombogenic cascade, the endothelial dysfunction, which at the same time, those three things promote more fibrosis. So our job is how to intervene in this vicious circle to avoid further replacement of normal cardiac tissue by tissue that does not contract. And what are the ideas as far as intervening? So uh, we are going to move from, from established research in the domain of physiopathological explanation to an area of current investigation. So please, I ask the audience, to differentiate what we know and it is established from what we think in the future that it could be the target of interventions. One of the aspects that we are taking into consideration is as progressive fibrosis of the atrium occurs, alterations in cardiac rhythm also occurs. And this is the famous atrial fibrillation. Nowadays, we know that atrial fibrillation increases the risk of stroke, increases the risk of heart failure, and increases the risk of total mortality. To prevent a stroke, we do have medications, which are blood thinners, that make your, uh, uh, your blood more smooth, avoid information of clots that end up going to your uh, brain circulation. Those are the famous oral anticoagulation uh, um, medications. But in order to take some of these medications, you have to have proved atrial fibrillation. And when you see the cascade of events in atrial failure, atrial fibrillation is the epitome, is the end of the road. When you develop atrial fibrillation, there is some damage that we won't be able to recover, at not least with current available medications. So one of the questions that the, the, the medical community is re-asking is, in order to prevent a stroke because of atrial fibrillation, should we provide anticoagulants to patients with demonstrated alteration of their resynchronization of, of the atria and alterations in the electricity despite not having atrial fibrillation? Could they benefit if they're still in the normal rhythm of the heart? For this, for, for answering this question, there are two trials ongoing, one called Artesia by the PHRI in, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and the second one being developed between the US and Spain called Amiable, where for the first time, people with no atrial fibrillation are going to receive oral anticoagulants to see if in a long-term follow-up, there is a reduction of stroke. 
So this is one of the targets that we are looking. So those studies, are they just looking at electrical aberrations or is there any study that's looking at, say, extensive, super extensive fibrosis? I know that you, two you, good, you two, nail two it go, with a question. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, but you're right. So the two studies that are analyzing the targeting of oral anticoagulants to prevent stroke in patients that do not have atrial fibrillation are Arcadia from the PHRI with Jeff Healy um, as the as the principal investigator already uh, registered a registered trial. And in this case, Arcadia, it's using the information of cardiac imaging, precisely the echocardiogram to see the size of the left atrium as the entry criteria into this trial, while Amiable, that is still in preparation, is not looking at the consequence of the dilation of the atria, is looking at the surface electrocardiogram looking for advanced interatrial block criteria. That means the alteration in the conduction between the right and the left atrium. Well, that'll be interesting to see how those play out. And it makes me think about stroke of undetermined etiology and you know how a lot of times we do such an extensive search looking for atrial fibrillation with various monitoring over and over again, but maybe eventually we'll be needing to look at testing for extensive fibrosis and things. You hit it in the nail again because, uh, and, and we work a lot with, with the undetermined, we call it ISIS, the, the stroke of undetermined origin. When we look at the ECGs, of patients with ISIS, if you have advanced intraatrial block, the odds of having a stroke is 10 times higher, tenfold. Mm. And now I want you to remember that the first trial that has tested the hypothesis of for a patient that already had a stroke of undetermined origin, to randomize it, randomize those patients to a blood thinner versus aspirin had to be interrupted because there was no benefit. So you say, Adrian, then it's over. Hold on a second. What we did is we contact some of the authors of this trial and we asked them in a blindly manner to send us the ECGs of their patients. Unfortunately, the ECG was not systematically recorded. So a group from Mexico that participated in this trial sent us in a blind manner, 98 ECGs, and we classify them into having normal P waves, partial intraatrial block or advanced intraatrial block, but they had all the outcomes of the patients. They knew who had a second stroke. What did we find, Jim? that patients with intraatrial block have a tenfold increased risk of stroke. So our proposal to the community is, if you have ISIS, that's not enough, clearly not enough to anticoagulate everybody. But if you have ISIS and you have intraatrial block, you are at higher risk. 
and this answer whether anticoagulants are more effective than aspirin is going to be answered by amiable because amiable is using the electrocardiographic entry criteria. That's that's excellent. That is really excellent. Well, what about uh, just back going backwards a little bit? How what what should physicians cardiologists know about maybe trying to prevent this process from happening? You know, what what risk factors? maybe to correct beforehand, uh, try and limit the uh, onset of atrial failure? Okay, so before I move from treatment and I try to answer your wonderful question, let me tell you that at the present time, there are only minor efforts for the treatment of heart failure associated only with atrial failure. Why? Because most of these patients are being included into the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction group, okay? It okay. is true that in that group, you may have valve disease producing atrial failure with still preserved ejection fraction. But if we are able to convince our colleagues to have easy definitions for atrial failure coming from clinical, clinical uh, investigations, I mean, physical exam, ECG, and simple imaging that should include echo, and I put an interrogation mark on atrial strain. We did have our first invest investigations that got published with excellent results, but I did have problems to convince echocardiographists cardiographists, to jump into a quick definition of atrial strain that could be used to define atrial failure. And then all these new medications, there are several trials, and I'm not going to mention them or the drugs because they have a profound impact of industry. But currently, there are multiple trials working on what are the best strategies to treat heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And my question is, why before accepting what is coming in the next two, three years, we rethink what are we treating? Mm -hmm. Are we treating primary atrial failure? Because if that is the case, only in the treatment, I, I'm going to go to the prevention, only in the treatment, there could sure. be strategies that are being tested that could be extremely, extremely useful. For people conducting those trials, please do a sub-study of ECG and imaging categorizing atrial failure and let us know if for that subpopulation that accomplished the definition of atrial failure, these new medications are effective or not. That could be a massive contribution to science. Now, to answer your question, I apologize because I no, used three no, minutes. No, to, no apology to... needed, no. <laughs> All right, so um, prevention. Prevention of what? Prevention of all the things that we know that impact our heart as a global thing. Sometimes I talk to the patients and I refer to the analogy of think your heart about a house. So I need to know how the walls are, how the windows open, do they close properly? Are they stuck and you cannot open properly one of the windows or the door? So I use that analogy with my patients to, to help them understand how we think about their heart as whole, right? So we do know that heart hypertension promotes a serious 
of issues in the cardiovascular system. And one of them is it promotes fibrosis due to multiple mechanisms, mechanisms of neurohormonal activation of endothelial dysfunction, all the things that I mentioned at the beginning. So fighting hypertension and fighting it aggressively. I'm going to say, uh, to quote a paper from Jeff Healy, maybe 10 years ago, where he discovered that electrophysiologists like me, when we see patients in the clinic, we don't pay attention to, to the blood pressure of the patient. That made me change, change my practice. And I put blood pressure control as one of the goals when a patient comes with an arrhythmia. Because if the patient already has an arrhythmia, but they can't control their blood pressure, there's nothing to be done because it perpetuates the mechanism. Sure. Smoking, I don't need to talk about that, Jim. Your audience know how bad smoke is. Uh, uh, um, diabetes and, and the so-called pre-diabetes, aggressive management of this condition avoids long-term cardiovascular effects. Sedentarism, I could speak for another hour on the benefits of moving. We're not even now talking about exercising, we're talking about moving. But I would like to leave to your audience one concept. When I was a med student 30 years ago, they were telling me that we had to really make plans for people 65 years of age or older. Through my career, we decreased that to 55, which is my age now. And I thought, oh, hold on. According to what I study, I should be doing more exercise every day. Then we go to the early 40s. And what is coming? cardiovascular prevention does not start when you are 20. That starts when you are three years old, when you are in kindergarten. Yeah. We now know that an obese kid that is not moving, eating fast food every day, watching TV, laptops, uh, uh, cell phones, rather than being outside, now that we can re-socialize, in the outdoors, with all the limitations and safety not to contract any virus, is excellent for not your development of your brain only, but also to the development of your cardiovascular system. So the correction of the factors that I told you do not start when the disease is already detected. Preventing hypertension is preventing atrial failure. Preventing sleep disorders and, uh, and um, sleep disruption prevents atrial failure, as well that it prevents atherosclerosis, ischemic cardiomyopathy, sure. and heart failure. Sure. So we have to move our target to the early infancy where these type of habits, unfortunately, will determine the risk of contracting these diseases. And two, fin two final things, two, two potential risk factors. Also, do you agree? I think I read in one of your comments, previous paper, sleep apnea and alcohol, those are obviously very important to mention to the general physicians. Absolutely. Sleep apnea and any type of sleep disorders resulting in a sleep disruption are triggers of your autonomic nervous system, your neuroendocrine system, as you mentioned before, Jim, that will end up impacting the dynamic of your ventricles and your atria. 
and the early management of this condition, rec recognition of the problem and management of these, of these, uh, of these two problems, sleep apnea and sleep disorders, is with no doubt uh, very impactful on your future of contracting cardiovascular diseases. Regarding alcohol, is a topic that maybe we can save for future sure. podcasts. Absolutely. But in, strictly in terms of atrial fibrillation, any zip of alcohol increases the risk of atrial fibrillation. However, when you drink within the recommending, recommended American Heart Association guidelines, for example, in wine for men, is up to two glasses a day, leaving two days free of alcohol. The risk of developing atrial fibrillation in statistical terms increased the relative risk, increased from one to 1.1. What did you say, Adrian? From one to 1.1. So does it increase? Yes, it does. However, in our daily life, Jim, we do accept that type of risk. For example, we live in urban cities and we breathe air, polluted air, right? Air pollution increases your risk of AFib in the same amount that if you drink alcohol within the guidelines. Of course, if you keep drinking more, you will have hypertension, heart failure, ischemic heart disease, and atrial failure, no doubt. However, be careful when you analyze what we call increased risk. Because you know what, Jim? Living increases the risk of total mortality. And we still want to <laughs> live, the to live result, longer yeah. and to enjoy life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure someone's going to be knocking on your office door momentarily, but in closing, any other thoughts uh, about this topic? Final comments? Uh, about this topic, uh, um, I think that one of the messages that we have been able to advance by co-working with Dr. Bisbal, with Dr. Bayeskenis, with uh, uh, Bayes de Luna and Brownwell is a, a clear message of intergenerational equity where we use the talents of an energetic young colleague and we use the talents of one of the geniuses and senior cardiologists in the world. And I would like to use this opportunity to tell my colleagues, don't think that being older is being wiser. We need the young community teaching us how to communicate science these days, because science mm -hmm. is being communicated in new platforms, new waves, platforms that I know that Mediblurb has embraced. And I congratulate you for that because it's a huge effort to understand how a 25-year-old med student, a 22-year-old nursing student wants to learn about science. And for that, breaking the barriers between generations is one step closer to effective communication. So thank you, Jim, well, for the work you do excellent. to keep us informed. Well, you're most welcome. Well, in closing, uh, I'd like to, like to send a thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of MediBlurb Podcasts. 
we'd like to extend a special thanks to our guest expert, Dr. Baronchuk, for sharing his valuable insights and knowledge with us today. We hope that our discussion has led to a deeper understanding of this important topic. To our listeners, thank you for listening today, and we hope for your continued support of our mission to improve lives through education and discovery. If you're looking for more information on this subject matter and more, be sure to visit mediblurb.com, where you'll find reference material links to further your understanding. Until next time, stay informed and stay healthy.